this. <laughs> Good morning. Good morning. Oh, that's better. Hmm. <laughs> We're going to uh, read from God's Word, and we'll start with looking at Matthew chapter 21, which is the story of Palm Sunday. Um, but those of you who might want to be looking that up in your Bibles, uh, remember the days when people used to bring Bibles to church? Um, <coughs> <laughs> so, we're going to be looking at that in a moment, uh, but normally, until a few months ago, I would at this point bring you greetings from Seba. I can't do that anymore because I don't work for Seba anymore. So, let me bring you some greetings from one or two other people. First of all, from the European Baptist uh, Federation. You were praying this morning for uh, Ukraine, and uh, this time last year, as people were flooding out of Ukraine, uh, it was Baptist churches primarily in Poland and Romania that were welcoming the people and helping them. One little church, much smaller than you, uh, about 100 members, um, was uh, looking after about 300 people at a time, feeding them and housing them as they came out of Ukraine. Um, another Baptist church in Poland, um, this time last year, uh, had a baptismal service and baptized a dozen Ukrainians who came out of Ukraine and uh, met Jesus. And so, even in the darkest situations, God's at work. Amen? Amen. Amen. Right, hopefully you've now found Matthew 21. So, oh, the one other place I was going to mention, I got my, the drum I'm playing this morning is an Arabic drum. Um, so it was given to me by some Palestinians. So I just ask you, please, will you remember to pray for... Israel-Palestine at the moment. Um, in, th in that country, uh, if you are a Jew, you are number one. If you're an Arab, you're number two, as long as you're a Muslim. And if you are a Christian, you're number three. And if you are an evangelical Christian, you're number four in terms of the way the society works. And if you've been watching the news recently and what's been going on in Israel, you'll realize that your brothers and sisters uh, there in Nazareth uh, and in Bethlehem uh, and Ramallah on the West Bank, they need your prayers at this time. And by the way, ladies, having gone one, two, three, four, if you're ladies, you're even lower, okay, in some of those cultures. So uh, remember to pray for your brothers and sisters. I bring you their greetings uh, this morning. I'll be out there again May next year, uh, leading a party of people going out to meet the Christians as well as seeing the sights. Right, Matthew 21. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there, with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell him that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet, Say to the daughter of Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, 
who's this? The crowds answered, oh, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus entered the temple area and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, and you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple area, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise? And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany, where he spent the night. Well, that was the events of that occasion all that time ago that we're celebrating today. A vicar announced that next Sunday he would preach a special sermon, and in the meantime wanted everyone to read the 17th chapter of Mark. A week later, he asked all those in the congregation who had read the 17th chapter of Mark to raise their hands. Almost everyone did. Just as I thought, the vicar said, my sermon will be on honesty. There are only 16 chapters in Mark. You see, there is more than one way of preaching a sermon or teaching a lesson. And he taught them a big lesson by his actions. Two Pharisees were sitting listening to Jesus. One turned to the other and said, too many stories and not enough scripture for my taste. Unlike the Pharisees, who were all words, Jesus communicated. He told parables. He used illustrations. He lived his message. See, Jesus followed in the footsteps of the prophets by acting out his message. Hopefully. It's just gone dead. Uh, <laughs> there we go, that'll do. Can we go to the next slide? There we go, that'll do brilliantly. Okay, just to pick that picture out a little bit. You see... Um, the prophets who came before Jesus acted out their messages so often. Uh, down in the bottom corner there, you've got a, a, um, a yoke. And Jeremiah, one of the prophets, took the yoke and put it on himself to act out what was going to happen to the people. So they got the message. They could see the message acted out for them. And that's what Jesus is doing. Um, by the way, he did some other strange things as well. Um, Jeremiah also hid his underpants under a rock. Uh, beside a river and on another occasion to make a point. I won't go into that now, but look it up for yourselves if, you wanna, if you're interested. Um, <laughs> Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey down Palm Sunday. That's Palm Sunday Road there, uh, which uh, I'll be walking down again <laughs> next year. Um, and uh, he was acting out a message very clearly to the people those who understood what he was saying. He was fulfilling 
the prophecies of Zechariah and Isaiah as he came into the city riding on an ass. It was a deliberate claim to be the Messiah. Anybody seeing him who knew their scriptures would have understood. Wow. See, that's why they were crying Hosanna. We've made Hosanna into a bit of a woohoo sort of thing. It's not that. Hosanna is God save us. That's what they were shouting. It's not the same as hallelujah. <laughs> Hosanna is save us. Here was the king coming. Here was the one who was claiming to be the Messiah. And they wanted to be saved from, well, let's see what happens next. You see, as he goes down the hill, can we go to the next slide, please? There we go. He's coming down Palm Sunday, uh, which leads down uh, here. And he's heading towards that gateway there that is now blocked up. That's the Golden Gate. And uh, interestingly enough, it's been blocked up. It was blocked up by the Muslims because they believed that the Messiah was going to enter Jerusalem through that gateway. So they blocked it up so he couldn't get in. A few hundred years too late because he'd already come and gone in there. <laughs> but they, they also um, put that uh, graveyard in front of it because they believed that the Messiah would be a priest and the priest couldn't go into a graveyard. He couldn't, be, couldn't touch dead bodies. Uh, so that bit over there is Muslim. This bit up here is, is a Jewish graveyard. But that was an attempt to stop Messiah getting into Jerusalem. But as I say, they'd missed the boat. It had already happened. So that's what he was saying. Now, as he goes through that gateway, uh, go to the next slide, please. Um, there it is, a bit closer. And uh, if we go to the next slide. Okay, this is a model of Jerusalem as it was at the time. And I don't think I'm, there's not even enough in here to get anything. Okay, um, if I can try and explain this a little bit. Can you see there's a, a, if you're coming in from the extreme right, there's a pathway and it goes along. That's Palm Sunday Road. So he's come all the way down the hill goes across there, and then would have gone up into the city. Um, if we go to the next one, maybe I can show that a bit easier. Okay, so you've got the temple. That's the temple bit halfway down. Yes? You with me? Above it, there's a sort of square building with four squares at the corners. That's the Antonio Fortress, which is where the Romans were. Okay, so that's where Pilate's hanging out with all his troops. And these people were expecting Jesus to turn left. Sorry, to turn right. That he would come down, he would enter the city, and he would turn right and go and sort out the occupying army. That he was going to come in as the Messiah, as the king, wallop, let's sort the Romans out. That's what they were expecting. They thought he would hang a right. He didn't. He turned left. Wow. That was a total surprise. That was not what they were expecting. He went left and he went into the temple and started throwing out the money changers. He started challenging the religion of the day. Total surprise to all those people. See, Jerusalem had been under occupation before. Everybody in that crowd would have known the events of 200 years before, when Antiochus Epiphanes had defiled the temple. 
Antiochus Epiphanes, the, uh, the Greeks had arrived, and they defiled the temple by sacrificing pigs on the altar. Now, if you, can if you know anything about Jewish culture, you will imagine that you know, putting pigs in the temple was bad enough. Sacrificing them on the altar, that was the abomination. And uh, so a revolution eventually happened. Oh, by the way, yeah, the, he also worshipped Zeus in the temple, um, which, of course, also uh, was not seen as a good idea by the Jews. Um, and he turned the temple court area, the chambers there, into public brothels. So you can imagine they were not very happy. This led to a, a rebellion among the Jewish people, and uh, the Maccabees rose up against, the, um, against this occupying army. And it resulted in the recapture of Jerusalem, the purification and the rededication of the temple. It's an exciting story. Uh, but you won't find it, mostly you won't find it in your Bible. Because <laughs> okay. it's in that bit between the prophets and the New Testament. Uh, it's called the Apocrypha. Uh, so it's not canonized, it's not officially scripture, but you want to know the story, you'll find it in the book of Maccabees, there in that bit. So if you've got a book, if you've got a Bible that includes the Apocrypha, you'll find it in there. Um, it's a really interesting story. But the point is that in 2 Maccabees chapter 10, five, verses 5 to 8, we read of what happened on the 25th of Kislev. Now, <laughs> It says, they carried garlanded wands and branches with their fruits, as well as palm fronds, and they chanted hymns to the one who had so triumphantly achieved the purification of his own temple. And if we go on, this became the Feast of Hanukkah, or the Feast of Lights, which is still celebrated today on the 25th of Kislev. Now, the diary, the, the calendars, because of the way that the Jewish calendar works and the way that our Western calendar works, the 25th of Kislev can fall on the 25th of December. In which case, the festival of lights falls on Christmas. Hanukkah and Christmas are actually about the same thing. Had a wonderful conversation with. Um, Oh, who, who sang Walking Back to Happiness? Come on. Helen Shapiro. I interviewed her for Radio Luxembourg years ago, and we had a great conversation about this. Um, so this is, this is the, the menorah that is used for Hanukkah, and if we hit the button again, we should see that the, the one in the middle is called the Shamash, and that is the oil lamp that lights all the others. So they're all lit from that one. And the word shamash means servant, the servant of God. Jesus is fulfilled by Hanukkah. You with me? Okay. If you're not interested in things like that, forget it. But I find it fascinating <laughs> that the way the Old and the New Testament all uh, are fulfilled in Jesus. And, uh, but if this is so... The people who are there on this day when Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, they know this story. They know how the Maccabees came in and liberated Jerusalem. 
And they expect the Messiah to do the same, to come in and liberate Jerusalem, but now from the Romans, not from the Greeks. But the Maccabees liberated Jerusalem from the nations. Jesus comes to liberate Jerusalem for the nations. Okay, have you got that? The Maccabees liberated from the nations. But Jesus comes and liberates Jerusalem for the nations because he's opening the whole thing up and saying that this temple, this whole thing, is not about just some special Jewish people. This is for everybody. And so it is that you find Jesus came for the nations, not to exclude them. You and I are included in God's plan of salvation through the Messiah. Hallelujah. This is for us that Jesus came. So he came into Jerusalem as Judas Maccabeus had come into Jerusalem 200 years before. But he hadn't come to kick out the occupying power, the Romans. Rather, he was to reclaim the temple, to cleanse it from the abuses that defiled it and its worship. So he turned left, not right. This God of surprise... I mean, we can spend the rest of the morning just talking about this Jesus who is the God of surprises. Remember Jesus talking to the Samaritan woman? You know? Wow. He shouldn't have been within 10 meters of her. I mean, if you thought it was funny during COVID that you weren't allowed between, you know, unless you remember the government, uh, you weren't allowed to be within two meters of somebody. <laughs> um, <laughs> he wasn't supposed to be within 10 meters of her. But he asked her to get, give him a drink of water. Wow, God of surprises. Remember when Lazarus is dying and he doesn't run down there. He goes down there in his own good time to make a very different point to the one they were expecting him to make when he raises Lazarus from the dead. Jesus doesn't do things our way. He has a way of doing things that we don't expect. We want him to deal with something, and he deals with something else instead. We want him to take away the things that trouble us. He deals with something else and turns the difficulty into a growing time in our lives. Evelyn Christensen wrote uh, a book called Gaining Through Losing. She took her, the title for her book from a poem that some of you may know. I asked God for strength that I might achieve. I was made weak that I might learn humbly to obey. I asked for health that I might do great things. I was given infirmity that I might learn to do better things. I asked for riches that I might be happy. I was given poverty that I might be wise. I asked for power that I might have the praise of men. I was given weakness that I might feel the need of God. I asked for all things that I might enjoy life. I was given life that I might enjoy all things. I got nothing I asked for, but everything that I'd hoped for. Almost despite myself, my unspoken prayers were answered. I am among all men most richly blessed. Yeah. I remember being a piece of advice as a, as a young teenager, young Christian, said, if someone's really annoying you, pray for them. 
God may not change them, but he'll change you by praying for them. <laughs> He's the God of surprises. He doesn't do things the way we want him to or expect him to do. So what was it that Jesus had come to do? To be the savior of the world. To set people free. Not from the dominion of Rome, but not from the external pressures of a physical enemy, but from the self-inflicted internal pressures from sin and its results in our lives, from guilt and shame and a lost eternity. He went into the temple, not the Roman fortress. Sorry, go again. There we go. There's Jesus, and if we go again, he went into the temple. He threw out those who are preventing people from coming to worship God and those who are abusing the poor and the needy. Now, according to the uh, Qumran, the rule of the congregation, the lame, the blind, the deaf, and the dumb were excluded from the congregation. Uh, yeah, go on, another one. Hopefully, can you go one more? Oh, sorry, go back one. Go back one. Sorry, that'll do. That's fine. Okay. <laughs> Just in case you want to, if you want to read that for yourself, you're more than welcome. Um, <laughs> but we read in this passage in Matthew that the very people who this paper says were excluded were there. The blind, the lame, the disabled, the children. <laughs> they were there. And Jesus met them. And he welcomed them and he healed them. For the religious authorities, this was a violation of the temple. They were indignant. They were further scandalized by the children shouting their messianic acclamation in the temple precincts. They wanted them shut up. Jesus says, from the lips of children and infants, you have ordained praise. The religious guys are scandalized by the wrong things. They think that outcasts coming to God is wrong and that children making too much noise in praise is wrong. Jesus thinks that stopping people from coming to God is wrong, that preventing them from praising is wrong. The leaders of the temple thought that maintaining their religion at all costs was right. They thought it was all right to abuse others. They objected to the noise of praise, but accepted the noise of the merchants. Of course, they may have been a bit prejudiced because we believe they were receiving a rake-off of the profits of the merchants. Jesus didn't seem to think much of their religious behavior and their exclusive club. In Mark eleven seventeen, we have a slightly fuller version of what Jesus said. My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. People were denied access to God because of all that was being allowed in the temple area. It was all right for the priests, even the Israelite men. They had their bits of the temple that were okay for them. 
But the temple was to be for all nations. People who came seeking God were denied the possibility of meeting with him by their religion. They were kept out. Dare I say that the church can easily, just as easily, become a place where others are denied meeting with God. Denied access to him. Not by us having a jumble sale or making people pay at the door, but by having church as an exclusive club where outsiders find it hard to break in. Do we accommodate the unchurched or make them feel uncomfortable? Do we welcome them and make them feel at home? Do our attitudes, our language, our social, social cliques alienate or include? Is our priority welcoming the young, the elderly, the family, the singles, the homosexuals, those from ethnic minorities? Or do we help people find Jesus? Some of you may know this particular... Um, don't know why I'm picking this up, it doesn't work. <laughs> um, this particular illustration of... I'll, I'll put it on the screen. Yeah, here we go. Man and God were made to have a... This will just keep cycling, don't worry about it. Man and God were, to make, were made to have a relationship with each other. But our desire to go our own way, idealised in the words of Frank Sinatra, I did it my way, um, caused man and God's relationship to be broken. But God was not content with that. He wanted that relationship healed, and so he built a bridge out of wood that brought the two together again. This is the heart of our gospel. Amen? Yeah? So man and God then brought back together again by the cross of Jesus Christ. But, can we go to the next one? See, that's quite simple, that's quite straightforward, isn't it? And by the way, if you've not used that illustration before, if you want to explain the gospel to a friend or a member of your family, you don't quite know where to start, use the picture. Yeah? Man and God became separated. God built a bridge to join us back together again. It's really easy to explain your faith. Yeah? Okay. But the problem is, if we hit the button again, that sometimes man's coming along trying to reach God and there's this church in the way. Just as at one time the temple was actually getting in the way of people encountering God, the church can be a barrier. We can be a barrier by the way we say things, by the language that we use. You know, Here I raise my Ebenezer. What? What does that mean? Have you been washed in the blood of the Lamb? We may know what it means. It doesn't. People outside may not know what it means. When we speak about angelic strains and heavenly lays, that could mean something quite different in the culture that we're in. Huh. The Talmudic literature clearly... Oh, maybe just go to the next one. There you go. I saw that and I thought, yeah, that sums it up for lots of people outside the church, doesn't it? I've got nothing against God. It's his fan club I can't stand. Um, and there's been, I, I think it was um, Mick Jagger who said something to that effect. He said, um, I'm really interested in God. 
It's the church I can't stand. We're supposed to be the ones who help people find Jesus. We have to be very careful that we're not the ones who are turning people away from finding Jesus. Okay, next slide. Sorry. We're on the home straight, I think. Okay, don't panic. <laughs> Here's a bunch of Sadducees. That's a section from uh, Talmudic literature. And in Bekarov uh, 9, uh, it condemns pretense and hypocrisy. And uh, there can be no doubt that these vices constituted special problems for Pharisees. You see, there was a whole... Even in the days of Jesus, the Pharisees were known in different groupings. So, if we go to the next slide. There we go. Uh, So, let's just see what some of these groups of Pharisees were known as. First of all, hit the button, please. They were the shoulder Pharisees. The shoulder Pharisees carried all their good works on their shoulders for all to see. When they fasted, they put ash on their faces, and everyone knew that they were fasting. And when they bound their phylacteries on their arms, which got larger and larger to make a big thing of it, everybody knew who they were. There are Orthodox Jews still doing this in Israel today. And I've watched them putting these phylacteries on and binding things on their heads. And yeah, they may have taken something from Scripture, but they've made it such a big outward show. They're wearing their faith on their shoulder, or are they wearing their religion on their shoulders? So there were the shoulder Pharisees. Next, there were the wait a little Pharisees. They always had a good excuse why they couldn't do some good deed today, but tomorrow they would be able to help. You know, they made manana look hurried. (laughs) Then there were the bump and stumble Pharisees. (coughs) You see, the bump and stumble Pharisees were so-called because, you see, they believed that, uh, you know, you should never look on a woman because you might lust after her in her heart. So they walked around with their head down looking at the ground so they could never meet the eye of a woman or look at a woman's face. And so they were constantly bumping into things because they weren't really looking where they were supposed to be going. You know, the Muslims have found a different way of doing it by just covering women up from head to toe so you can't see them anyway. Mounts the same thing. Then there were the humpback Pharisees. And they walked around bent right over to show how humble they were. You know, Uriah Heap. I'm not making this stuff up, by the way. <laughs> this is all there. Um, and then there were the uh, compounding ones. They compiled a daily list of how they kept the law, which they wrote and pinned on their robes. So as they walked down the road, everyone would know what good Pharisees they were, because they'd done this, they'd done this, they'd done this, and they'd done this. Do you know any Christians like that? <laughs> and then there were the timid Pharisees. The timid Pharisees, they only whispered to show how humble and timid they were. They would never raise their voice. And then lastly, there were the God-fearing Pharisees, the ones who loved God. People like Nicodemus and Gamaliel.
we must be careful that we don't end up like the Pharisees. <laughs> that we don't adopt that any of those as the way we approach our faith. come back to the donkey for a moment okay here we go the lord needs it some recognized his authority to not know who jesus is and reject his authority is one thing to know who he is and reject his authority is something far more serious a bit like the parable that we we're being told by david at the beginning if you know what this good news is, and you know who Jesus is, and you reject it, that's very different to not knowing what's going on. How often do Christians treat Jesus like a pussycat? At their beck and call. They forget that Jesus is the God of surprises. He's going to do what I want him to do. I've got a neighbor who I've prayed with a few times. And whenever there's a problem in the family, she always comes to me or my wife. Will you pray for, presuming that we've got a special hotline to heaven. But she hasn't yet realized that Jesus isn't there just to do her bidding. He's God. We're here to do his bidding. And when we say, here, kitty, kitty, for Jesus, we're surprised when the Lion of Judah turns up. He limits his treatment of things in the temple. The children come to him and sing his praises. The humble, the lame, those in need, who know their need, come to him. The arrogant, the religious, challenge his authority and come unstuck. Do you know who he is? How are you treating Jesus at the moment? Is he Lord? Is he King? Or is he there to do your bidding? Many of us, even as Christians, treat Jesus as one we can control and get him to do what we want. A very famous book was written, and it wasn't about a, a donkey, um, but if we hit the button, there we go. There's some beavers in it. Some of you may already know what I'm going to say. <laughs> These beavers are from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Susan, asks, uh, Susan and Lucy ask Mr. and Mrs. Beaver to describe Aslan. Aslan is, of course, a picture of Jesus. They ask if Aslan is a man. Mr. Beaver replies, Aslan, a man? Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of the beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Oh, that you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or just plain silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. 
Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about being safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Will you forgive me? I'll tell you one last story. Then I'm going to finish. Okay. Um, Brian Clough used to be the manager uh, of a football team in this country. In fact, he managed two football teams in this country. Uh, on one occasion, he said, um, you know, I may not be the best football manager in this country, but I'm in the top one. Um, on one occasion, he was in the, the boardroom because his office wasn't big enough, so he's in the boardroom, and he phones down to the boot room, and one of the, the lads down there who are busy cleaning the boots of the first team uh, you know, picks up the phone and answers it, and uh, Brian Clough says, I want a cup of tea and I want it in the boardroom. I want it now. Puts the phone down. Five minutes goes past, ten minutes goes past, and nothing's happened. So he picks up the phone again, phones down to the boot, uh, boot room, says, I asked for a cup of tea here in the boardroom ten minutes ago, and it's not here. Don't you know who I am? And this little voice at the other end said, no. He <laughs> said, I'm Brian Clough. Sir, do you know who I am? No, I don't. Then get lost and put the phone down. <laughs> there is a terrible danger as Christians that we're sometimes like that with Jesus. As if Jesus doesn't know who we are and what we do and how we behave. He is the king. He is the Lion of Judah. He is the God of surprises. He challenges us. He surprises us. And sometimes challenges us when, he think, when we think he should be challenging somebody else. And so, even as we enter Holy Week and face the cross, we can also face the future knowing that on the other side of the cross is new life. Because he is the God of surprises, and just when folk think, there we go, he's the God of surprises, and just when people think they've got Jesus nailed down, hit the button, he comes back again. He will continue to surprise us all our days, because that's who he is but he challenges us to follow him and let him be who he is and help us to find out who we are. Amen. We're going to sing now, Crown Him with Many Crowns.